This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking about carbonomics and the future of energy with Michaela Delavigna of Goldman Sachs Research. But before that, we're going to get a quick markets update from Oscar Ostland of the Goldman Sachs Global Markets Division, who's watching five key numbers in markets right now. Welcome, Oscar. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. So before we start on the numbers, just tell me a little bit about your focus area here at Goldman. So I'm the head of content and data analysis on Marquee, which is our institutional investor platform. So what's a big number that you've been looking at as we start the new year? 303%. That is the ratio of China's total debt to GDP. Essentially, over the last decade, Chinese policymakers have favored growth over deleveraging. And while debt pile can grow for a very long time, it can't grow faster than your economy forever. So while I think there are plenty of bright spots in the Chinese economy, this is a risk factor that I always keep an eye on. And with global growth being so highly dependent on Chinese growth, this is very relevant to global markets investors. How about a number that you feel has been getting a lot of attention but doesn't tell us all that we need to know? 145,000. That's the headline number in the latest non-farm payrolls report, often called the jobs report, representing the number of private jobs the U.S. economy added in December. We've continuously seen strong numbers in the jobs report, yet inflation is still below the Fed's 2% target. In fact, we have now had 111 consecutive positive monthly jobs numbers, a near 10-year stretch. And that's the longest rate on record, way past the previous four-year record. A much more relevant number is inflation, and more precisely, inflation expectations. In a nutshell, financial markets are time machines, allowing people to exchange units of work today against units of work in the future in a transparent and efficient way. Hence, for anyone making a financial decision, inflation is a key input as it alters the balance between savers and borrowers. So, Oscar, how about a number that's moved a lot or maybe it hasn't moved much that's caught your eye? 1.12. That's the euro-dollar exchange rate. And it's spent about a quarter of last year at that level. Usually, exchange rates move much more than that. The one-year realized volatility, our measure of fluctuation in prices, if you want, currently sits at 4.3%. This is the lowest since the late 70s when currencies were pegged against each other and it was basically zero. And history usually tells us that when volatility is this low, it becomes unsustainable. And I would not be surprised to see a resurgence in volatility in the coming year. So how about a number that you're thinking about for the future? 1%. That's the forecasted GDP growth for the Eurozone in 2020. This number is important because the Eurozone economy has been fighting very strong secular forces that have prevented it from reaching escape velocity in the last decade. Um, including the deleveraging in Southern Europe, constitutionally mandated fiscal austerity in Germany, the Brexit uncertainty. And with a lot of that uncertainty being about to be resolved, no significant election in 2020, conditions in global markets relatively benign, this is as close to as good as it gets for Europe. And therefore, it'd be very worrisome for the European integration project if we don't see a stronger number here. And what's interesting is that in our latest marquee quick poll survey, the largest institutional investor survey in the street, we've seen a notable shift from U.S. equities to European equities. So investors do seem more upbeat than economists here. And how about a number you're thinking about when you're not at the office? 140. That's the number of days until the next Champions League final. And being a Paris Saint-Germain fan, I'm convinced they will get there and obviously win. We'll see. Thanks, Oscar. Now on to the Carbonomics segment of the episode here with Michele de la Vigna. Michaela is the Commodity Equity Business Unit Leader in EMEA for Goldman Sachs Research based in our London office. Welcome, Michaela. 
Thank you, Jake. To start with, Michaela, you put out a recent report called Carbonomics. Explain what you mean by carbonomics and what it means for the future of energy. I think as climate change becomes top of mind, it's very important that we find a solution for decarbonization that makes sense financially with the lowest impact on the disposable income for the consumer, the broadest technological innovation, and the most efficient financing. That's why it becomes particularly important to look at decarbonization from an economics perspective. Your research talks about the cost curves of decarbonization. Explain that and why that's important. What, why, what, what does that cost curve look like? So we have looked at almost 100 different technologies across the spectrum of the economy, from mobility to power generation, buildings, agriculture, industry, to try to find out what are the key technologies that can help us reach net zero carbon emissions over the coming decades. And what we discover is that there are some amazing low-cost opportunities which will drive investment in the coming years, but that they may not be enough to get to net zero carbon. And that's where it's particularly important we continue to foster technological innovation. And also on the other side, we look at new technologies that can allow us to get back the CO2 from the atmosphere through CO2 sequestration. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What does the cost curve show some of the best opportunities in the future of energy? So when we look at energy, it's two key areas where we believe technology starts to be in the money. There is plenty of opportunity in power generation through wind, solar, and energy storage. And there are some really attractive opportunities coming up in mobility, particularly in city centers for buses, for passenger vehicles, and for shipping. And we believe this will be at the core of what could be a one to two trillion dollar investment opportunity per annum over the coming decades if we want to reach net zero carbon. So will these opportunities do enough to mitigate the effects of climate change? What else may be needed? We believe about 50% decarbonization is achievable within reasonable carbon costs, but then the cost curve becomes very, very steep which means that we will need either of two things, either a real technological breakthrough, particularly in things like battery and energy storage, or we will need sequestration. And one of the fascinating things we have seen over the past few years is how little has been invested in CO2 sequestration, either through nature-based solutions like reforestation or technologies like carbon capture uses and storage that can take back the CO2 from the atmosphere and either create materials with it or store it underground. Carbon capture and storage, the technology's been around and there has been some investment, not as much as, as there as there might should have been. What what is the early research shown and some of the early technological deployment shown about its feasibility and what will it take for that innovation to accelerate? I think we know the technology is there, we know it works, but we know it needs to be developed in scale to really improve its economics. I think carbon capture and storage is like where solar was in the 90s, underinvested with tremendous potential, but without the ability to deliver yet economies on scale. And yet the following 20 years showed that prices could go down 80, 90% on the back 
of scaled investment. And I think we will see the same in CCUS, including the opportunity which really would resolve uh, a lot of the problems of decarbonization, of cracking the technology and the economics for direct air carbon capture. A lot of these technologies have been around for a little while, but obviously you say that investment hasn't hasn't really um, really followed at the scale that's needed. What role are capital markets taking in financing the energy transition today? Capital markets have become very involved in climate change, and we actually think they are currently being one of the key drivers of change across global corporation. If we look, for instance, at the climate change shareholder resolution since 2012, they've doubled and the support of shareholders has tripled over that time period. And this is forcing corporates to really incorporate climate change into their risk management, into their investment outlook, and into how they think about their business developing in the future. It's also completely changing the way that financing works in the energy industry with new attractive avenues to finance low carbon solution. And on the other side, a very severe tightening of financial conditions on traditional hydrocarbon assets. So what what is that? mix mean for the price of energy in in the near and medium term? When we look at the financing of hydrocarbon assets, we believe that the financial conditions have tightened so much that we're actually now into a period of structural underinvestment in oil and gas, which will mean that the way the decarbonization process will work, particularly in the next 10 to 20 years, is likely to happen through higher commodity prices, not lower commodity prices. And this is actually a perfectly rational thing to happen because it achieves two key aims. The first one, to continue to incentivize the consumer to find the low carbon alternative to the energy use. And the second one, it avoids the buildup of stranded financial assets that could be destabilizing to the global economy in the long term. This energy industry has always been about scale, but you're seeing even more consolidation today and a lot of barriers to entry. What's driving that right now? Absolutely, Jake. As, as we look through the oil and gas industry, the tightening of financial conditions is creating higher barriers to entry and is incentivizing consolidation to the point that we believe we are seeing the resurgence of what we call the new seven sisters, seven large oil and gas companies that like in the 50s and 60s dominate all large scale new hydrocarbon developments. And this, we believe, is creating a better industry structure for energy and is creating higher returns for those companies. So this this consolidation in the industry, as I said, it's always been an industry that's favored big scale, can sometimes lead to less innovation and a little bit less investment. What does the market structure going forward for this industry mean for innovation and for new investment? I, I think you're absolutely right. It will mean less innovation, less investment, and overall, less production in oil and gas, which will drive higher oil and gas prices. But on the other side, I think these corporations will put more investment and more innovation and more top management focus on the low carbon solutions. And this mix 
of more focus on low carbon, but on the other side, higher oil and gas prices on the back of the underinvestment is what I think will help to accelerate the decarbonization process for the global economy. Obviously, it's a sector like our own that's heavily regulated. Um, how would you characterize, it's hard to sum it up in very quick terms, but how would you summarize the kind of regulation that we're seeing around the world and, and, and where's the directional flow of that regulation? At the moment, every government, every country tends to have different incentives for low carbon technologies. And some of these have been very successful, particularly in areas like wind, solar, and batteries, but it's been inconsistent. I believe that it would be much better to have a broad technology agnostic CO2 pricing that would actually help achieve a better technological innovation in the coming years. And is there any prospect of, of pricing like that that would be transparent and kind of global in nature? It's difficult to say. I think Europe is very keen to achieve it, and under the new European Commission will certainly uh, push its global peers to think about broadening and increasing the carbon price to accelerate the decarbonization process. So what's the top question you're getting from investors as we enter uh, 2020? One of the top questions from investors is the role that the energy industry, and particularly big oils, will have in decarbonization. Are they drivers of change or not? And we have delved into this issue in our Reimagining Big Oils report, where we really think about how their business can transform to enable lower carbon emissions in the future. And we believe they can, and that their balance sheet and their risk managed capabilities can have a key role in enabling a broader uptake of low carbon solutions, particularly in power generation and mobility, and will also have a key role in funding some of the key emerging sequestration technologies. Now, investors in the energy sector sometimes are just looking for return of capital, and those some of those energy giants have been great returners of capital through both buybacks and dividends. Doing the kind of investment you're talking about will require redeploying some of that capital. How do investors feel about that? I think big oils can hit an attractive balance where on one side they continue to enhance the cash return to shareholders and on the other side they substitute an underinvested amount of money into traditional oil and gas with new attractive opportunities in renewables, in sequestration, and in low carbon solution. And in that way, we actually believe they can lower the carbon intensity of their energy sales by 10 to 20% over the next decade while enhancing corporate returns. So what, what was the most surprising finding from your carbonomics research for you personally? I would say, for me, the most surprising factor has been how underinvested the CO2 sequestration technologies have been. If we take carbon capture, use, and storage, which will be an absolutely key technology if we want to get to net zero carbon, they've only received less than 1% of the investment than solar or wind have received. And the reason is that there hasn't been enough broad and high carbon pricing to incentivize those new technologies. I would almost call the, lo the last decade, you know, the lost decade for CO2 sequestration. And I think that needs to change in the next 10 years. Fascinating. Thank you for joining us, Michele. Thank you, Jake. 
That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our other podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.